Well, this morning we continue in our study of Second Peter. This week we'll talk about chapter 2, where Peter is giving us some warning. And next week, chapter 3, where he will conclude uh, his, his epistle. Remember, Peter is a shepherd. He is an elder. Now, it doesn't mean that in order to be a shepherd of the church, you have to be an elder. Don't want to equate it like that. A shepherd is one who is given by God the ability, the spirit gifting, all that is necessary to minister to the needs of the flock of God. And so in this room, for instance, there are many shepherds and shepherdesses. I don't know the feminine of shepherd. There are many in this room who are shepherds. In fact, all of us are called to shepherd one another. Amen? There's no such thing as being a member of the body of Christ and not being called as a member of the body of Christ, as a brother and sister to one another, to be shepherding one another. So I want to make sure we don't take the word shepherd and put it in a category so unique that no one else is a shepherd except them who are the pastors and the elders. Yes, there is a uniqueness about an elder's shepherding. We understand that. There is an authority, a gifting, a uniqueness. But every one of us are to be shepherding the souls First of all, our own souls, so that as we shepherd our own soul, we can shepherd others. So the enemy, the, the man on the front line fighting a war with his, you know, shooting, he has to make sure that his own weapon is clean before he can go ahead and deal with the enemy. Amen? And so, we're shepherds together. So this morning, let's continue where David left off a couple of weeks ago. And again... I want to remind you, David outlined Second Peter around the theme of be sure and be aware. And so this morning, in the first chapter, Peter has reminded them to be sure what? Of their calling and their belief, of their theology, and to be set in the word of God. That all that they understand, all they believe, is set firmly on the rock of the word of God. Not on experiences experiences are not the foundation of our faith. The word of God is the foundation of our faith. Our understanding of adherence to and participation in the truth of the word of God is the foundation of our faith. That is our faith. However, that faith, if it is going to be faithfully walked out, will be walked out experientially. Are you with me? Can Can you say amen? It will have... Feelings to it, emotions to it, amen? So we can stand here and say something about the word of God that is true and at the same, Wendy, where you at, Wendy? Stand up, Wendy. This is London. Come on, girl. This is London. I don't know how she sneaked in and I didn't see her, but you must have been walking in with Joe and Jody and I didn't mention them, but I wanted to mention you. First time she's back for a while. And so any aspect of the word of God We can faithfully rejoice and get excited about it. Amen? You see, that's why when I'm teaching, speaking, preaching, I simply don't like the idea that when I'm speaking about the Word of God and proclaiming the truth, the Holy Spirit in me, not this man you're not talking about and directing it toward this lump of clay. That's idolatry. But when we're doing it, 
and the Holy Spirit impresses something unique on your heart. You've heard something that touches you, whatever. In my classroom or in the sermon that I am preaching on Sunday morning, always feel feel free to say what? Glory! Amen! Thank you, Jesus! Amen? Yes! Always feel free. Now, in the case of Ronnie Sloan, he's going to go, Whoa! What was I do that again? Do it again? Last night we talked about the Marine. Oh! I thought he had a bad cold or something, whatever. So, if anything, and Pharaoh has said this many times, and others have said it, if anything, Christianity is a feeling, experienced religion based on the truth of the Word of God. Amen. And so, when I'm up here doing it, I want to hear from you. I want to hear and experience what the energy of the Holy Spirit in the classroom. So you feel free. And seriously, I really mean this. I don't mean out of control and, oh, my word, the class is going out of control. But if you feel like just standing up and jumping a little bit, stand up, come on in. Who's that, Paige? I can't see you. Yeah, come on in, Paige. Uh, If you feel like standing and jumping, do it. Because we're free in Christ to proclaim our God is great. Amen. Well, let's go ahead with the class. So beginning in verse 1, and I'm I'm not going to go into great detail on each one of these because we don't have time because we have felt that the Holy Spirit wants us to overview these classes. And for those of you at home, you're at home, you're in your pajamas. (laughs) Thank you for not being here like that. But if you're home and something Holy Spirit strikes you, jump up. First Peter follows the examples of Jesus himself. In fact, first Peter follows the example of everything in the Bible. And here it is. I've said this before. I want you to make sure it's, you get it. Every time. May I repeat that word? Every time. God moves. You know what I mean by that? Every time God moves. There will always be, with rare exceptions, rare exceptions, a counter move of Satan to oppose, to undo, to question, to weaken, to whatever the move of God. Can you get that? Oh, my word. Every time God moves, there always is, with few exceptions, a counter move by Satan that what? His purpose is to undermine, cause to be questionable, puts the light on you as if something is wrong now because you have experienced something contrary to the move of God and all of a sudden today you're experiencing something which if it would it would seem to be in opposition to that it's just what God did with me yesterday you yesterday Darlene and today you feel something like well maybe that wasn't happening it's a move to get us to what to hear the word that was spoken in chapter 3 verse 1 of Exodus, I'm at Genesis, what? Hath God said? 
hath God said. <clears throat> That's what Peter is telling the church this morning. <clears throat> he says this. Jesus also does the same thing in Matthew 24, 11. He begins chapter 2 by warning them that false teachers will present, be present in the midst of God's people. <clears throat> Let me read it. Verse 1. But false prophets also arose among the people. Remember, in the Old Testament. When did that begin? Genesis chapter 3, verse 1. Just as there will also be false teachers among you. Doesn't say might be. What does he say? There will be false teachers in the church. False as to their character and also false as to their instruction or their teaching. False in both categories together. You cannot be a false teacher without have false teaching, and you can't have false teaching without have false character. They go together. These people who will secretly, what? Secretly introduce destructive heresies, even denying the master who bought them, bringing swift destruction upon themselves. So I'm going to just kind of go through this. I don't want to do it too mechanically, but I want to make sure that we just kind of get the sweep. This is the same kind of warning. Remember that Paul gives the Ephesians in, in Acts, Acts 20. He goes back to Ephesus. He's meeting with them. He's about ready to go to Rome. And he's pretty well convinced I'll never see you again. And I want to make sure I give you one more. I want to say all the things that I've been t teaching you and everything I've been instructing you. Remember all of that. But let me give you this warning. And here's what he does. He does the same thing as the Apostle Peter. This is my last word to you. Beware false teachers are coming. And the Apostle Paul does the same thing in Acts chapter 20, verse 29. I know. How does he know? Two reasons. He knows the word of God. And he knows the God of the word. He knows the word of God. And he also knows the God of the word. Therefore, he can say this. I know that when I leave you. False teachers will arise where? Where? From among you. They will be in the church. And they will bring to the church, from within the church, teachings that are contrary, even in subtle ways, to the gospel of truth. And here is precisely my great concern for the church. Today as never before. Now I've lived 77 years. I don't know everything but I know a little bit. There is today. A cultural movement. With all kinds of vicissitudes. That is preaching a false gospel. And it's like. The smoke, you ever been in your house and you smell something that's outside a fire down the street and you can begin to smell it? Are you familiar with this? It's beginning to permeate the pores or the house of God. And if we're not careful, and if we're not biblically grounded, and if we're not God-centered, we are going to begin to fall for issues that are lies, that say... That the issue for and about man is most important. But the gospel says the issue for and about God is most important. Amen. 
Now, does that ignore man? No. But it doesn't deal with man's issues according to man's ways. It deals with man's issues according to the only way that is helpful and beneficial to man, and that is the gospel of Jesus Christ. So let us be careful. False teachings are coming into the church. Let's be careful what we hear, what we believe. Let's compare everything to the word of God. You see, Paul said that too. And so we know that the first time that comes in is Satan. Even, even Jesus had to, remember, endure false teaching. Do you remember that? In Matthew 3 and Luke 3, after being baptized by the Holy Spirit in the wilderness, remember? Did you see the movie? Jesus was led into the wilderness by the Holy Spirit to be tempted by the devil. And that temptation was, if you would, a, a collection of the temptation that all of us experience. Every one of the three temptations is the same temptation that Eve and Adam experienced in the garden, hath God said. Everything is a questioning of the word of God. In some way, a questioning. Be very careful when there are things in this world, oh, I know I've got to get through this. There are things in this world that I don't understand. Are there anything you don't understand? Anything? Can anybody say yes? Yes. There are things even that I don't like that are God's way. I I wouldn't do it that way, Mary. Anybody feel this with me? Is it rough to be honest like that? And so in those moments when you are experiencing what is happening, there is a whisper that says, have God said, could this be God? Has he forsaken you? Have you missed something about the love of God? Do you hear it? Have God said, is the comprehensive temptation that is contained in any and every temptation of life. It all is about undermining God himself. Yes. We must see that. We must see it. So Paul says in 2 Corinthians 2.11, we're not ignorant of Satan's schemes, talking about refusing to forgive. In Ephesians 6, 11, Paul says, stand against the schemes of the devil. These are schemes. So Satan's purpose, as we see in this verse, is to permeate the soul, our souls, our minds, with destructive heresies. Why? So that in some way, to some degree, maybe not, I'll never believe in Jesus, I hate him. But in some way, to some degree, begin to deny something of Jesus. Something. You see, Mark, just a little something. He knows he can't wipe you out, but at least if I can get if I can get a little something out of you that is false. <clears throat> a little crack in the wall. Just a little bit, Harold. Then I can work on a little bit more. Do you see? Secret, destructive, false teachings. False feelings, false analyses, false allegiances, 
false evaluations, false teachers. All of it is used as a tactic, a scheme of enemy to undermine Christ in us. You, am I too loud? Oh, when I whisper sometimes, Patty. They actually want me to talk louder. Turn me up a little bit, Bob. So, so this is why our minds must be protected by the truth. The only defense we have, the only defense we have, the only defense we have, Phyllis, is that our minds are permeated with the truth of the word of God. It's the only defense we have. This is why we must be grounded in, enmeshed in, you know, permeated with the word of God. A little bit of reading once in a while does not do it. There are coming waves of destruction against the church in the next many years that for many believers, we don't believe they'll lose their salvation, but for many will be washed out and overcome. Why? Be simply because laziness in the word of God today. If you're not in the word of God, please, for the sake of God himself in you, turn off whatever it is that is in the way or taking up your time and get into your Bibles. Amen. Amen. This is not a, a suggestion. It's a command of God. It's a necessity in every generation. But more and more we're seeing the effects of believers being washed into false teaching because they simply did not understand and know the truth of the word of God. Verses 2 and 3, Peter describes such false teaching as destructive heresies. Destructive heresies. Many will follow their sensuality. And because of them, the way of the truth will be maligned. And in their greed, they will exploit you with false words. But then look at the rest of the verse. But their judgment from long ago is not idle and their destruction is not asleep. There is a God in heaven who superintends and looks over and is governing everything in this world, even the activities of all the liars. Any person who is not of Christ is a liar. John eight forty four. Jesus says to the Pharisees, you are of your father, what? The, you know, the devil, and he is a liar from how, when? The father of lies. He's a liar from the beginning. He's the father of lies. Let me try not to kill myself when I get around here. <clears throat> God superintends everything. Rosa, he hasn't even missed a molecule of what's happening. Amen? Not even a molecule. Verse 4, for if God did not spare, then he's going to explain God superintending through the Old Testament. If God did not spare the angels when they sinned and cast them into hell and committed them to pits of darkness reserved for judgment and did not spare the ancient world, remember in Genesis 6 to 7, the flood, and preserved Noah, a preacher of righteousness with seven others when he brought a flood upon the world of the iniquity 
of the ungodly, and if he condemned the cities of Sodom and Gomorrah to destruction by reducing them to ashes, having made an example of those who would live ungodly lives thereafter. He said, you, you think God's not seeing it? Any of you been mistreated in this room? I mean, actually mistreated, not that you thought you were. I think all of us have been mistreated, haven't we? Every morning I look in the mirror, I know I have been mistreated by my parents. Mother nature and father time. <laughs> I've been mistreated, Stephen. Look at me. All of us have been mistreated. Listen, I grew up in a house. Massive mistreatment. But God was overseeing it all. Doing whatever work, quizzical in me, to bring about his glory. Amen. God is not asleep. He knows it all. And we say this sometimes. Well, somebody has to pay. On the day of judgment, there will be a payday. Correct? There will be a payday. Verse 7. Peter references these Old Testament. Now look. And if God, look at verse 7. Now, remember, before we read verse 7, and I have it listed here in more detail in, in, in Genesis Genesis chapter 13, Abraham is a very large group of people with him. Then he has Lot with all the, their, you know, flocks and goats and servants and all that. So we have two major large groups of people living on the same hill. And so there's not enough room for all these, you know, sheep and goats and whatever. We have to kind of divide. Abraham is the superior. He is the patriarch. He's in charge. He has the authority. So exercising his authority in a godly way, look at what he does. He does not say, Lot, we're too, too many of us. He does say that, but he, then he goes further. He doesn't say, Lot, we're too busy. Look, you take all you, you and your group, and you all go over here. That's what we expect when we talk about authority. Amen? Listen to how the authority of God works. Lot. Choose for yourself. If you take the valley, I take the hills. If you take the hills, I take the valley. Right? The authority of God exercised in kindness, in goodness, in humility. That's the authority you will obey with joy. The other, hey, you, get over there, is the authority you will obey without joy. And so Lot, it says, Lot looked up and he saw all the lush greenery of the Jordan Valley. And he chose for himself. I don't know if that's in your, uh, uh, it's in the Bible, but I don't know if it's in your notes. He chose for himself. Here's what he did. I believe, I'm going to speak it like New Orleans. Me and my family need to have a better living location, so we're going to go over there. Because over there has this, that, and the other thing. And I don't like it over here. And we had this problem. We got that and we got the other and all that. So I need to get out of here and take my family and whatever. So you move over there. That's what Lot does. But did you see the emphasis? And what does it say? He chose for himself. I mean, Bridget, do you see anything in there where Lot prayed? Hmm? No. 
So what happened? Oh, it, it looks like a good decision. He's in a beautiful area, wonderful, financially secure, good jobs, you know, good weather, right? I mean, this, this man has moved, quote, to the right place. And then by the time you get into the rest of the chapter, what happens? Lot is in the city of Sodom and Gomorrah, living with these people, not condoning it, but at least putting up with it. He didn't have to live there. He chose to live there. Are we getting it? Now, you say, how can a Christian do that? Talking as if these are what they call Christian believers, God's people. How can he do that? Many people would say, Lot can't be a believer. Pharaoh, did you just hear me what I just said? Lot can't be a believer. Because we have judged on the outside and not judged the heart. He can't be a believer because if he were a believer, Joe, he'd do this, 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 and this. That proves he ain't no believer. Look at what Peter says. Verse 7, and if God rescued, say the next word. Say it again. Righteous. Let me tell you something. When God calls you righteous, what does that mean? You are righteous. You are a child of God. Say what? Lot righteous? How you say that? What kind of foolishness, Jason, is that? Righteous? Come on, Charles. How can he be righteous? Renee? Oppressed by the sensual conduct of the unprincipled men. The city is a bunch of homosexual men. Have you read the Bible? And for by what he saw and heard, that righteous man, while living among them, felt his righteous soul tormented day after day by their lawless deeds. You see, I think we could probably say with accuracy, even though the Bible doesn't say it, I think we can say at least this about Lot. He was a believer living a compromised life. Could you agree with that? The old term is what? Carnal, living by the flesh. He's a believer living a compromised life. Now, here's your question. I just heard it. How compromised until he loses his salvation? Someone just thought that. And so he's compromised. Is that good? Yes or no? Even though Lot was a compromising believer, God still calls him what? Righteous Lot. Why? Once again, it challenges us to the core. Because there is innate in our fallen flesh... This thought that our works are the way God determines whether or not we're saved or his children. It's in us. Come on. Come on. Don't you feel it? How many of you feel it with Lot? 
Man, he's living that way and among those people. He did that and he did that and he still calls himself a believer. <clears throat> How many of you feel that? Come on, you can raise your hand. How many of you feel that? Certainly we feel it. It's called the flesh. Certainly we feel that. We think it's what? Unjust. Come on. Are you with me today? You can respond in this class. I don't want a bunch of people who just sit there and look at me. I want to know that you're hearing and understanding. Can we feel it when we say, that is unjust. How can he call himself a Christian? Have any of us ever thought those ways? Yes. But what does God say? He's been washed by the blood. Romans 8, 1. Therefore, what, Lester? There is now what? No. No. No condemnation. Why? Because he's in Christ. There is therefore now no condemnation for those who are in Christ, in Jesus Christ. You see, his standing before God is not, the, uh, not dependent upon his works. It's dependent upon the work of Christ given to him freely by the grace and mercy of God, which he receives by faith. Now, the works is certainly supposed to be the obedience of faith, not the obedience to have faith. The obedience of salvation, not the obedience to have salvation, or the obedience even to maintain salvation, because we are saved by the grace and the power of God through the Holy Spirit, and we are kept saved all the way to the end, God knowing from the very beginning to the end, absolutely, absolutely, comprehensively, immediately, if there's any sin in us, that he won't forgive. And if there isn't, you ain't saved. Are you with me? This is an amazing verse, even unrighteous lot. Does that say, oh, well, it doesn't matter. We can live the hell we want. No. No, because lot, there's a day coming when he will stand in judgment with the rest of the church and he will lose a whole lot. Not his salvation, but he'll lose a whole lot. Verse 9. Verse 9, all of us should rejoice about. How many of us have been in real sin problems in our life? Come on. Any of us have ever felt that we've been overwhelmed and swallowed up and are sinking? I remember years ago, years and years ago. I don't know. I think maybe Cliff Jernigan was a pastor of the church in those days. And the Holy Spirit got my heart and I felt, I'm sinking. I'm sinking. Do you know what I mean? I'm sinking. May I say it clearly, Beth? The Lord scared the hell out of me. I'm sinking. And you should feel that if you're living a life that is ignoring sin. But look at what verse says. Verse 9 says, but the Lord knows what? How to rescue the ungodly from temptation and to keep the unrighteous under punishment until the day of judgment. In it all and through it all, there is a God who will, by his eternal power, according to his eternal will, 
having foreknown us before the foundation of the world and caused us to be born again unto a living hope because of the resurrection of Jesus Christ from the dead. When the Holy Spirit entered us and transformed our hard heart into a fleshly heart, this God will keep us unto the end. And if you are here this morning and you don't like that because of someone or something in your life and you believe that isn't fair, <clears throat> you need to fall on your face before a merciful God and stop calling him a liar and a reprobate and unjust. And thank God for such am I also. Amen. God knows how to what? Rescue us. And he also knows how to punish the ungodly. Can we rest in that as we look at all the injustice of this world? Come on, come on. Does that mean we ignore injustice? No. But it means that now I am free to be used by the Holy Spirit to deal justly with unjust injustice because I don't anymore feel that I am being ministered to by an unjust God. I am now free because I know that the injustice of the world is as bad in me as it is in any of them. But God, being rich in mercy because of the love with which he loved us, remember Ephesians 2, 4, save me, rescue me. Any, anyone in here, you feel that this is not a good deal? Let's be free in our own spirits first so that we can be freely and effectively used by the Holy Spirit as those who's, who are ministered but through whom God, the Holy Spirit ministers his mercy into a world that justly deserves to go to hell. Amen. And he ministers mercy to his people. And he uses us. So the issue is never essentially and primarily the injustice in the world. The issue is the mercy of God for all because all are unjust. Amen. Even if you're treating your neighbor the best way you know how and whatever, and you're not saved, you are unjust. That's the way the church is. That's the gospel. That's what we preach and protect. Verses 10 to 22. I'm summarizing it all in this, and you can read those verses. Following the example of the chief shepherd, you know, remember Peter, the chief shepherd. I'm sorry, following the example of Jesus, the chief shepherd. Peter describes the characteristics of these shepherds, of these teachers, false shepherds. Verses 10 to 13a, they are bold in their arrogance. Amen? They're bold. Have we not seen bold people preaching bold heresies? Am I the only one? Verses 13b, which means the second part of verse 13 and 16, they live for personal pleasure. Their goal is themselves. Oh, they may preach something about helping others, 
But the way, the reason they do it is because it's something about me. I feel better. I'm, I'm accomplishing something. There's nothing about God in it. It's something about me. Do, do we see this? Me. I'm so good. The world will say, heresies. 17 to 22, the empty promises entice many away from the truth. When you listen to the news, I'm not telling you don't listen, but I am warning you when you do listen. Listen through the ears of the gospel and ask yourself, is what I'm hearing that they're telling me I should do better, believe better, not doing all that. Is that the message of the mercy of God for sinners? Is it proclaiming the glory of God in his risen, exalted son who is coming back? Or is it something for and about principally man's benefit? Listen that way. The gospel is not for man's benefit. It's for God's benefit in which we benefit. The gospel is for God's benefit in which we benefit. Ronnie, you got that? Harold? There's a benefit to the gospel. The pleasing of our heavenly father. Colossians 1.10. The glory of God. And in that benefit, we benefit. Next week, we'll close chapter of uh, Second Peter.